It was so much easier uh, two weeks ago doing worship. <clears throat> uh, I was in Africa, and I was sitting under a mango tree <clears throat> with 12 worshipers from a village, um, uh, and four others, three others of us plus myself, uh, who had gone on a mission trip. And uh, as we sat there, we had no technology. Uh, nobody except us who came from other countries read or, or were literate. Um, but we spent an hour and 15 minutes worshiping God. Uh, none of us, uh, we had communication difficulties because I didn't understand their language. They didn't understand mine, but we did have a translator. And uh, so it was a very unique experience. Today I want to share just to start off a little bit about that experience, but not so much about it because I'm going to be sharing stories along the way. I decided instead of telling you all at one time, I'll give you bits and pieces uh, because there's too many things to share because every time I start talking to somebody about the experience I had in Africa for about a week and a half, um, I ended up talking for two and three hours. And I'm sure you want to stay and hear all the stories, but, uh, but I'm going to share them a little bit at a time. I brought some pictures this morning, so you can throw up the first picture there, actually. This is uh, us and my, our mission team at the only fast food place that I saw in all of Mali. This is a Mali's nation. Uh, this is actually, uh, I, I called a pseudo McDonald's. Uh, actually, there was no McDonald's there. We thought we were going to McDonald's on the trip. This is in a little place called Kit, Kita. Kita is a town uh, about uh, six hours or three hours from Bamako, the capital. The capital of Bamako is about two plus million people. It's chaotic. It's crazy. Everybody rides a motorcycle and they have no traffic laws. And uh, that's basically that. But in Kita, we drove through the town on our way back to Bamako after being out in the bush. And uh, our, our, uh, our Steve Nelson, who is the guy next to me, uh, with the with the the only one that doesn't have a light colored shirt on, uh, Steve was here with us. He is a mission coordinator. Uh, Steve told us we were going to have a treat. We were going to stop at McDonald's, and I never had not seen in and this is like the eighth day of in in Mali. I had never seen one fast food place in all of Mali, and I'm thinking there is McDonald's everywhere. Well, this is it. This was actually. I don't know how they got by with it, but this was actually a uh, metal building, and all that was inside was a cooler with drinks in it. And uh, and every uh, third day they would have a uh, they had a he had a grill outside, and he would grill hamburgers. He said they were hamburgers. We're not really sure what they were, but uh, that's what they did. That was their fast food place in Mali. So that's that's our mission team. That's myself. Uh, okay, on starting on that side, Mike Lichty, who is from Pine Hills Church in in. Uh, He's just a, a young guy who uh, went with us, and he, uh, he's, he's a layman, who is a cabinet installer, and uh, does it with his dad. And uh, he uh, went with us. He's from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Myself, uh, Steve Nelson, who is the mission coordinator, um, and I'll tell you more about him. And then Bala Saribe. Bala Saribe is a uh, businessman. I thought he was a pastor, but he will, he's not. Uh, he's a businessman, a Christian businessman from a nation next door to Mali called Burkina Faso. And he is a leader in their church. Uh, there are a conglomeration of about 12 to 15 churches there that were started. The first church in Burkina Faso was started 25 years ago. And now they have developed 12 other, 12 to 15 other churches in Burkina Faso. But he's a leader of their elder council, uh, one of the leaders. And he came with us. And what a blessing to meet uh, Bala. Uh, we'll be friends for life. Um, we emailed back and forth already several times, and he sent me pictures. Most of these pictures are Bala's pictures, by the way. And so uh, we have there. Next picture. Okay. This is uh, kind of the, uh, as we were in a place called Kedigu. 
that's in Senegal. We got, went to pick up our translator who, would, who lived there. And this was near the river. And uh, I'll just tell you a long story short. We got there. Uh, Samba, who was going to be our translator, was going to be our translator. Uh, he had been on every other trip. Got there. He was nowhere to be seen. And so we were going like, what do we do? Well, Bala was with us, and he understood that he uh, spoke a language that was very similar to the Yalankan, and so he, we went and took, took him. So this was a beautiful picture of down the river that people were crossing uh, that day. Okay, next picture. Um, this is the road, one of the roads. We traveled from Bamako where we flew into. We traveled six hours on a highway that actually was a fairly new highway, two-lane. And then once we got there, we went off-road. And this is the first part of the off-road trip. This is, this is the best part of the road by far. You can't tell here how bumpy it is, but basically we traveled three hours on this road and only went about 40 kilometers, and that's not very far. So we were going very slow because we were bouncing a lot, you know, going through rivers and stuff. Next next picture, another picture. This is a common site in Africa. This is called a termite mound. Uh, to give you perspective, if I stood in front of it, my head would barely get to the top of the opening there. That's how big it is. So they got some big termites there. I never saw the termites, but that's that's where they are. Next picture. This is a picture of a river we're getting ready to cross. This is right now, at, it's at uh, dry season, so this river is only about two feet deep. In rainy season, where we are sitting right now would have been 15 feet underwater. And uh, so just to give you a perspective about how, how hard, and we had to cross several of these to get to where we were going. So during rainy season, it's impossible to get to some places out there. Rainy season starts early June, runs to late October. And so during that period of time during the year, it's uh, impossible to go at least by land to a lot of these places out there in these villages. Next picture. Uh, this is a, a dry creek bed we went through. You see, I'm standing on the opposite side looking down. Literally, this, this dry creek bed we went to uh, was twice as deep as my house is tall. And uh, so to give you perspective here, and uh, we came up to it. This was out in the bush. Uh, this was on a path. We weren't on a road. We were on a path. We stopped at the edge, and I looked down, and I'm going, this is the end of the road. Literally, I thought it was the end of the road. And it was so deep that uh, I was thinking, no way. So we got out. We walked down through it. This creek bed went up the other side and stood on the other side. And then this this is Steve bringing the vehicle down through and coming up the other side. Uh, And you can imagine that normally during rainy season will be filled with water all the way to the top. And so right now it's totally dry in this time of year, into the dry season. Next picture. Uh, This is uh, pretty normal transportation. Everybody rides a motorcycle in Mali, at least in the cities. And everybody has uh, zillions of things. This is a small load, by the way. I saw a guy, two guys going down the street several times, saw stuff like guys going down the street, two guys on a motorcycle with a mattress balance on their head, a uh, queen-size mattress, and they do that all the time. Uh, people going around balancing things on their head all the time, so it's a pretty common sight in Mali. In the cities, it's th- this is out, out on the main highway, but uh, you'll see things like this, but you'll also see donkey carts, uh, little kids driving donkey carts. You'll see... Uh, I never saw a lot of animals, by the way. You think Africa, elephants, you know, tigers, never saw any of that kind of stuff. I saw lots of, uh, lots of, lots of goats and sheep and lots of, uh, of cattle in the middle of the highway. And uh, you just stop and let them go through after you're going 70 miles an hour and stop and let the animals go through uh, because they have the right-of-way. Okay, next picture. Uh, this is kind of what it looks like when you come upon the villages out in the bush. This is one we come to. All the trees that are cut down in the front, are, they're getting preparing this field to, to uh, plant stuff. They, they don't have ways of digging every, all the stumps up, so they just cut them off. They plant crops around them, and then they let the stumps uh, rot, and, and then they fertilize the field. And that's the common practice. The huts look kind of like this, and I'll show you a closer-up one in a minute. Next picture. This is when we finally got to one of the villages. We were greeted warmly. This is one of the African. This is the chief's wife in Falia. 
one of the three villages we went to, and uh, she she had we'd already Steve had already been there before, and so knew her and knew the the families there, and we spent actually two nights in the village of Falia, uh, with them on the on the way in and on the way out of the bush as well. So next picture, this is the chief um, chief. Uh, it really doesn't matter if you don't know his name. I can't remember his name right now. Sedu. Uh, this is Chief Sedu of the, the, the tribe of Megalabi, or the village of Megalabi. I'm sure you're going to remember that. Um, but this is, the fir- this is the village we went to that had not been visited before. And when we go into the villages, uh, we would drive up. Of course, no communication. There's no cell phones. There's no electricity. There's no running water. There's none of those things. So you drive up to a village. After traveling from Falia to this village, it took us three hours on a bush road to get there with a guide. And when we get there in the middle of the day, the chief invites us in, sits down in his hut, he feeds us, and he wants to talk to us for two hours. And so that's the kind of welcome we got everywhere we went in, in those parts of Africa. Uh, I can tell you this, that people are hungry for God's word. Uh, they practice animism, which is a type of uh, religion where they practice, uh, they, they kind of appease the gods and they do all kind of things. But they also practice uh, Muslim uh, religion as well. About a hundred years ago, Muslims came through, told them this is how you worship God. And so they also, you see some of the headgear and some of the out- outfits. It's African, but it's also some Muslim influence as well with what they do. And so they do, many of them do daily prayers and do those things. But at the same time, everywhere we went, people were saying to us, they said, you know, we want to know about this creator God. And, and actually in the village of Falia, the first village we went to, there had been some people that for various reasons through a Jesus film being shown through there by some people that didn't speak, English, uh, speak their language, but it shown them a film in their language that accepted Christ, but they had no teaching, they had no, no discipleship, they had no, they wanted to know about God. And so open, but people would very, very hospitable people, nobody is too busy to talk to you. Because they don't have anything else to do. And you're going, oh, yes, they do. they got to work every day, all day long, just to make a living, just to survive. So that's, that's, they spent us, so we spent about a couple hours here in this village, said we'll pass back through. We told him we were going to a village that we heard about called Aaron Medina, which was on the border of Mali and, and Guinea. And we said, do you know how to get there? And our guy that was with us said he thought he knew how to get there, but he wasn't sure. We weren't real excited about that. And so what happened was is that the chief's son, this chief's, uh, this guy here, uh, his son, 16 years old, uh, said, hey, I know how to get there. I'll take you. So that's showing up in the middle of the day. And we didn't know how far it was. We asked him how far. He said, well, it's only about a half a day's walk. Uh, you know, I don't know how far that is in, you know, in a truck. But since we were going much faster than walking, it you know, we thought, so it took us about two and a half hours to get to the village and this chief's son, next, next slide. Uh, no, these are some kids there in one of the village. This is actually at a roadside stand. Next slide. Oh, there's one of our, that's our hut. Okay. This is where we stayed for a couple of days, uh, a couple of nights. Um, this is the kind of hut you see there. It's made out of mud, uh, mud brick and then it's stuccoed and then they have this, uh, this big top on it and it has a little door. You can't really see it in that picture. But it, oh yeah, you can. The door there, and that's the only ventilation. It averaged 105 to 110 degrees during the day there. Uh, 85 at night was the low, and there's no ventilation. And my wife asked me, said, "How do you sleep?" I said, "Not very well." And uh, she said, "Also, she's used to having white noise." And I said, "Oh yes, we had constant noise. We had chickens, and and goats and stuff, and me all the time, uh, day and night." All around you. And so that's what it is. And they just wander around the village free. They roam freely. And uh, that's kind of the deal. So you, you learned. And we slept on mats on the floor. And people, you know, they, this was somebody's hut 
that they gave, let us use while we were there. And we showed up sight unseen. That's the kind of people these people are. Okay, next picture. Uh, this is us eating the meal. They were, every time we went somewhere, they'd give us this. This is called porridge. Um, porridge is kind of a thin, like, oatmeal, something like that. And what you do is they give you a bowl of it. They put it down in the middle of it, and they give you some spoons, and everybody eats out of the same bowl. Okay? Now, that was breakfast. Dinner was, dinner was uh, a little more exciting. Uh, dinner was basically, we, we were out on the bush during the day, so we just had our own food with us, which was another adventure. Um, because you can't refrigerate anything. But the other thing is, um, uh, dinner was basically a bowl of, of cooked rice uh, and a thing called peanut sauce, which was uh, peanuts pounded together with some kind of finely chopped vegetables. We're not really sure what they were. And some other stuff, and it's warm, and it's served in a big bowl, and it's kind of sticky rice. And so in their culture, they'll get five or six people around the bowl, uh, and they pass around. Uh, a watering uh, a bucket of clean water, and you wash your hands. All you pass it around and wash your hands all in the same bucket of water, and and then you take that, and then people eat it with their hands, out of the same pot. Uh, we did ha- we we were a little high class. We had spoons, uh, but we still ate out of the same pot with some of the villagers every day. So you just do that. Uh, so if you decide to go to Africa, letting you know up front, uh, that's what you do, because you don't want to offend them. And they're so hospitable and they're so open and they're so loving and caring um, about what they do. So this is this was uh, right outside our hut. You see there where we slept and they brought us the morning porridge and this is what we were doing. They brought us the chairs. They they give you their chairs. Uh, you know, I don't care, you know, where it is. They, they refuse to, if they don't have except two chairs, they make you, the, the oldest person, I was the oldest one of the group, and so I always got a chair. <laughs> and so age matters in this country. So it was kind of cool. So anyway, okay, next picture. Uh, this is uh, uh, some pictures. Oh, the guy, the guy standing there with his arm, kind of arm crossed. It, it, this is Muhammad. This is the chief's son that took us as a guy. He's 16. He's the most Americanized African kid I've ever seen. He had sunglasses on backwards, you know, and, you know, he's really cool. And uh, so anyway, he was, but he was happiest kid I've ever seen. I want to tell you something, folks. Sometimes we think that people, because they don't have a lot, are unhappy. These were very happy people. They're very sa- satisfied people. The worst thing we can possibly do is to go in there and make an Americanize them. Uh, they need the gospel. They want to know who Jesus Christ is. They need that. They want that. But these people live a simple life and are very happy in what they're doing. Okay, next picture. Okay, this was actually, it's really strange. Normally they smile a lot there. It's until you pull the camera up and then they all look somber. I don't know if it's like the old school pictures people used to take, you know, when everybody looked always like, I mean, they're still there. But, I mean, the only one that looked like he was happy was, was Sadu over here, and that's one of the chief's sons, and he didn't know we were taking his picture. So the rest of them are, are, are look kind of somber. But this was actually under the mango tree on a Sunday morning two weeks ago when we were getting ready to have a worship service, or maybe it was after, I couldn't remember. But uh, this is the group there. I think, we have any other pictures? Is that it? That's it. Thank you. Okay. Okay. That's, that's your Africa tour. Okay. I will say share some stories along the way. I just want to share this with you, that, you know, while, while it's important, I think it's important, some pe- people once in a while say, well, you know, you go someplace like it's life-changing. I wouldn't use that word. Because life-changing means it's something that happens in your life that changes the way you live every day. And I would hope that it would, in my experience in Africa, it, it makes me change and think differently today. But the problem is, is that I come back and live here, and after a while, I can forget things. You know, getting married is life-changing. 
It changes the way you live every day, right? Because you're in the process. But sometimes when we go to a place like this, it's, it can be life-changing in effect that it affects our life. But the thing is, is sometimes I heard Bill Hybels, pastor of Willow Creek, said, and he goes on regular mission trips every year or two all over the world. He says, you know, I read, need a regular inoculations to remind me of, of all the things that, that these trips remind me of. So I, I, I want to say to you that I, I was amazed how open these people are to God's word. But also, um, I was humbled um, to think how arrogant we are sometimes, and I am, to think that, you know, we need to go over there and fix them. They don't need fixing. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've heard what's happened since, uh, since I left Mali. I left a week and a half ago on a Tuesday night. Wednesday morning, there was a coup in Mali. 20 years of peace in Mali. The next day after I leave, six hours, seven hours later, the coup started taking place. And since then, what's happened is the country was shut down for a few, a few days. Uh, there's a long story. I won't go into that. But what happened is uh, the airports were shut down and whatever. Steve Nelson, who was going to be over there and was going to be another team going in a few days after we left, like last weekend, they couldn't go because there's no flights, international flights in. Uh, there's still no international flights to Mali. If I was had been there another day, I'd still be there. Uh, Steve Nelson is still there, but he's in the process of getting out of country and traveling across the borders and going to Senegal uh, so he can get a flight out of Dakar. And uh, that's going to be happening. And so he flies out Wednesday of this week from Dakar. He already has flights and everything. But it's a difficult situation because as God has opened the doors to Mali, what has happened is, I, and I ask myself this question, God, why now, why this coup, why now after 20 years when, when the Yolanka are so wanting people to come? When, and, and I'm going like, God, I don't know what your plan is, but you've got a plan, and I'm going to trust you for that plan. All I can say is, folks, we need to pray for the people. These people, that I, these people in this picture here are people, these are all people who said they follow Jesus Christ now. But they can't read, they can't write. The only access they have to God's word is through a little MP3 player called a proclaimer that's, that they can play. It's solar powered so they don't have to have batteries and so they can listen to it and they listen to God's word. And what they do this morning, probably what they're doing in Mali this morning is they're meeting under this mango tree, 10 or 12 believers. They're praying together and they're listening to the proclaimer. That's their service. But for them, it's life changing because when they hear God's word, they respond to God's word. I cannot tell you, the moment we arrived, we had question after question after question asked to us. We prayed with people about everything you can believe, or things I couldn't believe about. Um, and we spent our whole time talking and them coming to us, and, 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 and it was just an amazing experience to see people who were that open to what God is doing and, and don't know anything about God. But they're wanting people to come. And their biggest prayer, as, as we sat around the mango tree last, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we said, and Steve shared about, Steve Nelson shared about what prayer is, because these people really didn't even know what prayer is all about. And he shared this is about praying about the things in your life that God, you know, that you, that you want God involved in. And he names, names some things. And as they went around and we said, you can pray, everyone except for one person prayed. We spent over 30 minutes in prayer with people who know nothing about God. But they know, they want to know God. And their greatest prayer, and it was translated, so I know what they prayed, was that there would be people who come and sit among them and teach them about God's Word. So, 
We come to Scripture today. I want to share with you, continue to share with you from the, from the book of Acts. And we're in chapter 10. And in the last couple of weeks, um, Chris and Dan have shared with you from the cu- couple of chapters before this. We come to chapter 10, which is a transitional chapter in the book of Acts. And this is what it's about. It's about, about this guy named Cornelius. It's about a guy named Cornelius and Peter. Peter, you've already met in Scripture. Peter was one of the followers of Jesus Christ. He was one of his, uh, one of his disciples. And as he was... Remember in Acts 1-8? What was Acts 1-8? Anybody remember what Acts 1-8 is about? We've only said it every week for the last 175. No, I don't mean that long. Acts 1-8 says, When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will have power. You will receive power. And what will it allow you to do? To do strange things, right? No. It will allow you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. Well, Peter was following out, uh, we find here in Acts chapter 10, we find Peter following God's plan, exactly. Jesus' uh, plan, because Peter had been traveling and ministering in Judea and Samaria. He had been traveling about these, these actual regions that were there. And he came upon a place called Caesarea, a, a coastal city. And, and he's, it was there in Caesarea that this unbelievable thing happens in Acts chapter 10 and in part of chapter 11, where... This guy, his name was Cornelius, and Cornelius was, was a Gentile. A Gentile was, was anybody who was not Jew, basically. Not Jewish. Anybody, it didn't matter what you were. We would all be considered Gentiles if you weren't Jewish. And so anybody, and he was a, he was, he was a Gentile. And not only was he a Gentile, but he was a person who was a leader in the Roman, in the Roman army. And so the thing is, um, he, he was kind of an enemy because the Roman army occupied parts of the land. But the Bible tells us a little bit about Cornelius in chapter 10, beginning in the first few verses there. And this is what it says about I'm not going to read all the scripture today because it's a long passage, but I want to read bits and pieces. In chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, I don't have it on the screen, so if you have a Bible, you might want to look at it. Or if you don't, we have Bibles at the back. You can always willing, uh, welcome to pick those up. It says this about Cornelius. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, meaning a leader in the army. He led a hundred guys in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, and Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked? The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened, and he sent them to Joppa to find Peter. Now, when we read this, we're going like, the Bible's kind of throws a good light on, on Cornelius, does it not? God-fearing, generous, all these things. Sounds like a great guy, right? But in Peter's eyes, once again, Peter had grown up that if you're not Jewish, you're an outsider. If you're, if you're not Jewish, uh, we were not supposed to, uh, I'm not supposed to hang out with you. And what happened was, is, is Peter had every reason, because of his upbringing, to avoid Cornelius. Every reason. 
I mean, he was everything that a Jewish person was not. Or was. He was, he, he was, he was the opposite. But we see this picture of Cornelius in Scripture, and we ask ourselves this, uh, this question, why would not Peter accept him? Because he categorized him as a Gentile. And it's interesting because God had to do something, a change in Peter's life, which is dramatic, to make him open. Because Peter had been going around sharing with people about God, been sharing with them about God. And then, and, and so he gives this vision to Cornelius about this. And then he gives a vision. The next day it says he gives a vision to Peter. Then I want to read part of this. It says, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Peter was devout also. He became hungry, you know, which is kind of normal. And he wanted something to eat. And while the, while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. I don't know if he was, you know, so hungry, he just kind of like passed out and fell into a trance. I don't know what the deal is here, but he fell into this trance. And during this trance, it said he had a vision. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down by, to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, you've heard of kosher food, right? Jews have certain things they eat and certain things they don't eat. A good Jew. Peter was a good Jew. He had learned all his life that there's certain things you don't eat and certain things you do eat because, you know, they're just not things you're supposed to do. But here was a vision from God. It's it's a really strange vision. A sheep being let down from heaven. You know, and on this sheet were every kind of thing that that you could eat, including things that were not kosher. <laughs> and Peter's response is, well, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And then in verse 15, it says, the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. It had happened three more times. The sheep was taken back to heaven and it kept, I guess he, Peter didn't get it the first time. So he had to do it two or three times. So he really get it. And as Peter was, this, this, this vision was going on. It says, while Peter was still, verse 19, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three guys are outside looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Man, I wish God would give me visions as clear. Don't you wish he would do it for you? Eh, I'm not sure. Sometimes we don't want to do the things God tells us to do. Peter sure didn't want to do this. Because it would mean, mean going against everything that he had grown up believing was right and wrong. Hanging out with people, including people who he had never included before. In his life. But Peter went anyway. It says, Peter went down, verse 21, and said to the men, I'm, I'm the one you're looking for. What, why have you come? And then they told him about the vision that Cornelius had had. And then Peter invited the men to their house to be his guest. Then the next day, Peter started out with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa went along. And the following day, they arrived at the house of this Gentile. This Gentile Roman. And Cornelius was expecting them, it says. And as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. The Cornelius fell at his feet in reverence. You know, it reminds me, when we got to Africa, what was interesting is, is when they found that I was a, uh, Bala, her translator, 
started, you know, he would name people and he would tell them what we did, what our roles were. And, and I was the only pastor in the group. And when they found out I was a pastor, they thought, they, man, they, they always give me the best chair. And they I mean, they do everything for me. And I felt so unworthy of what was going on. It was kind of weird. I kept trying to give them the chair. And here's the chief of the village of several hundred people giving me his chair. And I'm going, no, no, give me your chair. But he would be offended. And this is kind of what Peter says. Peter says, Peter says, stand up. I'm only a man myself. But sometimes people respond that way. And then talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against the law, our law, for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. And then these two words, these two words, these two words you don't want to hear. Because it means something's about to change. But God. But God has shown me, in verse 28, remember this verse, key verse, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. What do you do with a passage like that? I mean, if you've raised your whole life and you've been told, you know, these you, to categorize people according to certain categories, how do you deal with a verse like that? You know, life would be so much easier... If we could, without this command, we could continue to, to categorize and ignore people. Because if we categorize people, we can say, oh, they're, they're like that, and so I don't want to associate with them. Uh, they're Africans. They're far away. They, you know, we need to take care of our people here at home. Are those people down the, down the street? I mean, they're different. Because when we label people, it gives us the opportunity to not engage with them. I mean, we say things like, well, he's an alcoholic or... He's liberal. She's divorced. They're living together. And when we say those things, sometimes, depending on the tone, we say these things, they carry a subtext. And the subtext sometimes is this. It's like, well, he's an alcoholic. You know, if he really, if, if he really tried, he could sober up. That person's liberal. They might even be a Democrat. You know, they'll never change. You know, if we could put a label on someone, they're Gentiles, they're unfit, they're unclean, we could, we could easily rationalize not connecting with them, not engaging with them. Is that true? It's easy to label people. But we see in this scripture, and we see in scripture all throughout, but when God Spirit, God's Spirit begins to work in us. He changes us. And we begin to say things like Peter says. In verse 30, go down a little further. Verse 34, he says it again. Cornelius tells him the vision that he had. And then Peter says in verse 34, he says, Then Peter began to speak, I now realize, I now realize, and I've been following Jesus Christ. The last two or three years, I've been following him, and it wasn't enough to follow him. But now, I finally got it through my thick skull. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and who do what is right. See, I'm amazed sometimes to think about this. I'm thinking about me. How dense are we? How dense am I? I mean, all of a sudden, this came to Peter. He had followed Jesus. Now, what was Jesus' 
example. The Son of God. Think of Jesus if he'd had a Facebook page. Who would have been his friend list? Who are the people he hung out with? Zacchaeus, the original Ponzi Meister. Uh, Matthew, who followed him, a tax collector. And in that day, a tax collector was not a good thing to be. Uh, he had women of, we don't even know their names, of dis, 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 I can't even say that word, disreputable background. I mean, don't know their names, but you know, women, ladies of the night. He had some of those he hung out with too. Matter of fact, he touched foreigners, he touched leopards, the marginalized. Jesus spent so much time around questionable people that people questioned him. I mean, it would have been so much easier to simply do what we often do and separate ourselves from people. But Jesus systematically dismantled the walls between people. And then we have this story of Cornelius and Peter in the history of the church here. And Peter is taught, told to go into the home of one who has always been taught, he's been taught to separate himself from. I wonder if you or I grew up being taught someone as a Cornelius. I mean, maybe you were not. Maybe you were blessed. Maybe you were blessed. You grew up in a home where the environment was, where you were taught to be colorblind. You were taught to be accepting of all people, that every person is valuable in God's eyes. But maybe you were not. And if you become a believer in Jesus Christ and God's Spirit's been working on you, you've spent a lot of years trying to break some bad habits. The way you perceive people. I'm going to give you a test this morning. I call it the Cornelius test. Okay? I'm going to give you a couple of scenarios and ask you how these, how these fit, just to give you some real-world possibilities. First test is this. You're a high school student. And you walk into the cafeteria at school with all your buddies and you take a seat at the table. And one of your buddies elbows you and says, hey, get a load of the new kid over there. And it's not hard to figure out who the new kid is because as you look across the room, the new kid's sitting by himself. And he's the only one wearing a skull cap, uh, the kind of little, the captain Muslims wear. The traditional Muslim headgear. And your buddies immediately start poking fun. And you're typically pretty quick with your barbs as well, generally. But you've been to Great Oaks the day before. And the pastor brought up this verse in Acts 10, 28. It says, God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Cornelius moment number two. The guy in the cubicle next to yours wears boots and chews tobacco and drives a pickup truck with a rifle rack in the back. But you wear loafers. You eat health food. You drive a hybrid Except on Fridays when you ride your bike, you pedal your bike to work. He makes racist jokes and your best friend is black and he has a rebel flag as a screensaver. 
And it's all you can do from getting up and knocking that silly grin off his face every day when you come into work. And one day, especially, he's getting on your nerves. But just that morning, you were reading a devotional thought and you read Acts 10.28, which says, But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. How do you deal with that? That's real world. See, what happens when we let God's spirit work in us? We see that in scripture here. Uh, Verse 44 through 48. We see what happens here. When Peter begins to let God's spirit work in him to change his mind, to change his heart and change his actions... It says, this is the results. When Peter was still speaking these words, these words that I no longer see that anybody is to be left out, that everybody's to be included. God has no illegitimate children. This is what he says. But while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on, on all who heard the message. And the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished because they thought only Jews could be Christians. Because they were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, these unclean, impure people. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered them that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. When God changes our hearts and he allows his spirit and his spirit begins to work through us and we allow it to work through us, it changes who we are. We do no longer see people the way we have seen and grown up with. We realize that the person who is different from us is still a person, a child in need of God. And it allows us to become witnesses to those people. And that's what happened here in Scripture. And then in chapter 11, chapter 11, we see what happens when he goes back home. Peter, it says, the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard about what the Gentiles, that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went back home to Jerusalem, he had this conversation with them. And he tells them what happened. And then in verse 9, he says the same thing that he said three or two or three other times in Scripture. He says this, he says, do not call, the voice, he tells him this, the voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And he said it happened three times. He tells the story. And it says here that at the end in verse 18, it says, when they heard this, And they understood what God was doing. They had no further objections. And they praised God saying, so then God has even granted the Gentiles repentance into life. See, God will even change hard-headed church people when we allow spirit to work in our lives. In 1930, there was a lady named Edna Gladney. She was the director of an orphanage in Texas. And she noticed something on all the birth certificates of all the kids in her orphanage. And then she began to check around and found it was true everywhere in all the orphanages. There was a word that appeared on every birth certificate of every orphan born in the state of Texas. The word was illegitimate. Now, how would you like that on your birth certificate? There forever. Illegitimate. It took her three years, but in 1933, she convinced the Texas legislature to remove the label from all birth certificates. In a sense, saying that God has no illegitimate children. Yet God has some troubled children. 
He has some struggling children. He has some wayward children. He has some lonely children, some hungry children. He has some children who have brought a lot of pain into their own lives. He has some children who have inherited some pain from their families or from country or culture. But God has no illegitimate children. See, this was the message that God was teaching Peter. Cornelius is not an illegitimate person. Because God wants us to see people in a different way. Not as insiders or outsiders, not as Jews or Gentiles, not as liberals or conservatives, not as better or worse, not to label because to label is to libel. I love this verse in 2 Corinthians 5.16 from the NLT translation. It says this, so we have stopped, this is what Paul says, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. I think that's the message from Acts 10. May we do the same. May we see people differently, not as problems, but as opportunities. I want to tell you, <laughs> there's no doubt in my mind that the people, the Yolanka people of Mali are an opportunity. Now, they're difficult to get to. They're difficult to get to. But they're an opportunity. But God wants us to have a heart for them. And for other people and other places. It may be the people next door to you. The person you can't, you know, your neighbor, you're going like, man, I wish I didn't live there. And you'd celebrate when they left. Move somewhere else. But God wants you to have a heart for them. Because once we see people as opportunities, we see people as opportunities for God to do His work once they are in the hands of God. And what can God do with people? Unlimited. God has no illegitimate children. Remember that as you deal with people every day and as you pray for people and as you think about the people that you're even thinking about right now because next week's Easter. And Easter is the easiest time of all the year to invite someone to hear God's word. And I promise you next week, the people that are here at Great Oaks will hear God's word in a very simple and straightforward way. Don't give up. Trust in God's spirit to lead you as you allow him to do so. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.